We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it's verses 1 through 20. So as you flip there, I want to tell a little story. My two younger brothers and I, so I've got four brothers, I'm the middle of five boys. Okay, My two younger brothers and I, all throughout high school and college, we all worked the same job. We were lifeguards. Is anyone here at lifeguard? Has anyone here done lifeguarding? No one? Okay. Wow. Oh, someone in the back. Perfect. Yeah, we got parents who are lifeguards. So, so uh, me and my brothers were lifeguards, and we loved that job because you do absolutely nothing. You get paid for it, and it was awesome. That's why we loved the job. But while lifeguarding was often a very easy job, there were moments, and there are moments in it, where a lot is required of you. And every second is a matter of life and death. You're expected to administer CPR to someone who's lifeless, or you might do the Heimlich maneuver on someone who's choking on food and they can't breathe. My little brother witnessed and was a part of one of these moments, but it wasn't at a pool. Instead, he was out at dinner with friends. While he and his friends were eating and hanging out, a lady who was sitting next to them started choking on a piece of steak. Her husband tried all that he could to help her, but he couldn't get that piece of food out. My brother, who is a lifeguard, ran over, and he immediately began performing the Heimlich maneuver, which is where you take your hand and you move it in J, in like a J shape. And eventually, after he did that, after a couple of seconds, the piece of steak popped right out. So for close to a minute, this lady could not breathe. She was as close to dying as she probably ever had been. But in the Lord's providence, he placed my brother there to save her. Now, this story goes to show us just how fragile life can be, and it also shows us how much of a blessing it is to be saved from death. Our topic this evening is resurrection, which also deals with being saved from death. Now, more specifically, resurrection deals with being brought out of death and into life. And for that reason, the Heimlich Maneuver may not be the best illustration for this. CPR might be a more fitting illustration. CPR is the process of attempting to revive someone's heartbeat. They are, for the most part, dead, but sometimes they can be revived. This is what resurrection can be likened to, although as you will see in our text today, resurrection is much more glorious than simply administering CPR to a lifeless body. So after our seven previous messages leading up to the death of Jesus on the cross, as we looked at all of his sayings, I felt that it would be fitting to devote a message to the resurrection of Christ and what it means for us in our understanding of the gospel. So as we look into our passage today, we will be reminded of the gospel, and hopefully, by the Lord's grace, we will see the importance of the resurrection in the grand story of redemption. So we can summarize today's text like this. Since Christ has been raised, have hope. Since Christ has been raised, have hope hope. I'm going to break this down into three major parts. So my first one for you all is the whole gospel. The whole gospel. Follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 11. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. 
and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So this letter of 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to different questions and situations of the Corinthian church. And you find this out as you read through the entire letter. You'll see him responding to different questions and different situations in the church. But I'll give you just one example. There are many throughout the letter. I'll give you just one. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is giving a stark rebuke of the Corinthians' actions. And it shows that he received some kind of report detailing what was happening in their church. Here's what he writes in chapter 5. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. After writing this, he then denounced the sexual immorality in the church for the rest of the chapter. And so we see from this that Paul was responding to a report that someone gave to him about the Corinthian church. In our passage today, 1 Corinthians 15, is another instance of this. Paul is seeking to answer a question that the Corinthians were asking. We know this because in verse 12, Paul asks, How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Clearly, Paul had a problem with the Corinthian church. They were denying the fact that there was a resurrection of the dead. Now, we're not entirely sure why the Corinthians didn't believe in a resurrection. It could have been that they were influenced by philosophers or that they were influenced by heretics of their day who failed to emphasize the importance of the body. So men like Plato and heretics called Gnostics, all of these people taught that the spiritual was good and that the physical was evil and worthless. But these ways of thinking, of course, are contrary to what scripture teaches on the subject. We know that our bodies are created by God himself. And therefore, they are every bit as good as our souls that indwell us. The Corinthians struggled to grasp this biblical truth, and it had negative effects on their theology, as we will see shortly. So in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is answering some who object that bodies can actually be resurrected from the dead. So he begins his answer to them, to this question. He begins his answer by giving them a reminder. His reminder to them is of the gospel which he had previously preached to them. Now, think about this for a moment. We know that the Corinthians are a church, and they therefore talk about and hear about the gospel all the time, right? That's what churches do. So why is Paul giving them yet another reminder of the gospel? The answer is because you and I can never hear the gospel enough. The gospel is not just for unbelievers. It is a call to repentance for all who hear it. And it's a reminder of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The gospel cannot be spoken of enough, and it is our responsibility to always be thinking of and reminding ourselves and others of the gospel message. So what is the gospel message? Well, Paul gives us a great summary of the gospel in the following 
verses. And I thought maybe this would be helpful for you guys, for me to make a really, really nice chart for you all. So this is actually courtesy of Greta Heitland. Let's give it up for Greta. So I started making the chart, and she said, let me make that pretty for you. And I said, ouch. So here it is. Um, can you all read that? I know it's kind of hard. It's, it's kind of a bummer that the parents are in the back, right? But we've got it up here. So this is the chart that I made to help you figure out this, okay? It's really not an in-depth chart. It's not hard to follow. It's right in the text, okay? But that'll aid you. Why don't I turn a little more? Can you guys see that? No? Yes or no? Yes? Okay, I'm just going to move a little more because I saw some confusion. So we'll follow along in the passage, and we'll see this play out. So this is Paul's summary of the gospel in the following verses. He breaks it down into two main parts. Each part has a supporting statement that gives physical proof of the physical death and physical resurrection of Christ. So I've got a question for you guys, and I'm actually looking for an answer from someone. Why would Paul include these physical proofs in his explanation of the gospel? Why would Paul do that? Does anyone have any idea? Greta? People would believe him. Right, so people would believe him. Yeah. The Corinthians, remember what their problem is. What's the problem with the Corinthians? Here in chapter 15. They don't, believe. they don't believe. And what do they not believe in? The resurrection. Right. The physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul, in giving his explanation of the gospel, he wants to give physical proofs of the gospel to further cement the reality in their hearts and their minds. So the first main part of the gospel message is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. This is what we've spent the last seven corporates discussing. All of the moments leading up to his death on the cross. Paul then tells us why and how Christ died. The why is for our sins, and the how is in accordance with the scriptures. Christ's death was no random death. It was the death of God incarnate on whose shoulders laid the full weight of sin. And his death was also not random. Because it was in accordance with the scriptures. As we saw in the seven sayings of Christ from the cross, everything he said and did, every single thing, was in fulfillment of prophecies. The next statement is the physical proof that Christ died. We see Christ died for our sins. The physical proof is he was buried. Paul mentions this to confirm the death of Christ. He references his burial because this is something that could be looked into. There was a real tomb where Jesus' real body was actually laid. To Paul, Christ's death was not a spiritual death. Jesus' physical body was wrapped in linen and it was laid in a grave. So that's the first main part of the gospel. The second main part of the gospel message is that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So the second part of the gospel is that Christ was raised from the dead. Just as Christ's death was not a random death, neither was his resurrection random. It was in accordance with the scriptures as well. Christ foretold his own resurrection countless times to his disciples. The physical proof that Paul gives for Christ's resurrection is fascinating. He writes that Jesus appeared to many different people. This section is much longer than the previous one, which is not surprising when we remember that it is the resurrection that is the topic of this part of the letter. They didn't struggle with Christ's death. They struggled with Christ's resurrection. 
So let's take a brief moment to look at who all Jesus appeared to after he was raised. The first person that's listed is Cephas. Okay, that's just another name for Peter. John 21 tells us of Jesus' encounter with Peter, where he asks him, do you love me? Three times. He asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And then he calls him to lead his people. And then Paul mentions the twelve. The twelve disciples all saw Jesus and they were terrified. They were cowering. And then Paul tells us he appeared to more than 500 brothers. Now this event is not recorded anywhere other than here in scripture. Paul mentions that many of them are still alive and that is crucial. He mentions this because he wants the Corinthians to know that there are still people alive who have seen Jesus and who can actually attest to his resurrection. The next person Paul mentions is James. James was a really important leader in the early church. He was second in authority only to Paul and Peter. And then lastly, he mentions himself. On the road to Damascus, we all know the story in the book of Acts. Paul had an interaction with Jesus when he came to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Paul closes out this first section with a word of praise for God's grace in his life. And it's a longer section, and, and for time's sake, we're not going to get into it. But this word of praise for God's grace, it ought to be characteristic of all who contemplate the beauty of the gospel. God's grace is made clear to us when we remind ourselves of the gospel, just as Paul had reminded the Corinthians of the gospel here. Since Christ has been raised, have hope. My second main point for you tonight is the gospel without resurrection. The gospel without resurrection. Follow along as I read verses 12 through 19. Paul writes, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So after Paul's reminder of the gospel and the importance, him stressing the importance of both Christ's death and resurrection, he explains what the gospel would be without the resurrection. Paul assails the Corinthians with a series of ifs. These are conditional statements. So if blank is true, then blank will inevitably happen. Paul's goal with these conditional statements is to point out the flawed logic of the Corinthians and show them how they are missing out on a crucial part of the gospel. Paul says the word if many times, but he has an introductory if statement and three major ifs after that. An introductory if and three major ifs after that. So we're going to examine them briefly here. So firstly, the introductory if. This is verse 12. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? This statement from Paul shows the clear contradiction in the Corinthian logic. The gospel that they've accepted and claimed to adhere to 
strongly affirms that its Savior, Jesus Christ, was resurrected from the dead. That's what the gospel teaches. And it isn't just a small part of the gospel message. It's not just something that we can take or leave. Rather, Paul is reminding them that the resurrection of Christ is of vital importance. Therefore, it is astounding to Paul that although they acknowledge that salvation hinges upon resurrection, some of them clearly do not believe in a resurrection at all. It doesn't take a genius to figure out the problem here. The Corinthians blatantly contradicted themselves. So Paul follows this illogical logic to its conclusion in his first major if statement. If you're a note taker, then you're going to want to label these if number one, if number two, if number three. Okay. So if number one, firstly, this is verse 13. Verse 13 says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So the first consequence of assuming that there's no resurrection is that Jesus Christ hasn't actually been raised from the dead. As Paul showed the Corinthians earlier, this undermines the entire gospel. Because resurrection is at the very center of what we believe. So if we deny that there is any resurrection, we are actually denying the gospel itself. Paul re-emphasized this idea in verse 16 in almost the exact same wording. Here's what he says in 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He says almost the exact same thing in that verse. He thought it was so important that he needed to say it twice. And the Corinthians are not the only ones who lived as if there is no such thing as a resurrection. Our culture despises the concept of supernatural events in general. Ever since the Enlightenment in the 1700s, humans have been skeptical of anything that they cannot explain with their own intellect. And this even rubbed off on those who profess to be Christians as well. So one example is Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, who claimed to be a Christian, but he denied most all supernatural activity. He was skeptical of everything in the Bible that he couldn't explain, and he edited the Gospels by removing references to anything miraculous. And today, we live in a world where everything supernatural is explained away with scientific words that are supposed to make you sound smart. The Big Bang is one of these examples, right? Instead of acknowledging that there is a good God and that he created the world, we've substituted him for two rocks that collided and exploded, right? We've replaced God, we've replaced the supernatural with things that we feel like we can explain away. Evolution is another example of this. Instead of affirming that there's a good God who created us, we've substituted that idea with the idea that we've evolved from monkeys, right? We have absolutely substituted God and the supernatural for things that we can explain in our own merits. So God's sovereign ordaining of all things in his good and gracious will have been reduced to absolutely nothing. But contrary to our culture, we as Christians do believe in the supernatural things that have been ordained by God. The resurrection is the most important supernatural event ever to take place. And unfortunately, many throughout history have bought into the lie that God did not raise up his son Jesus. The Corinthians, Thomas Jefferson, and even people in today's age have denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul's next major if follows the logical flow that comes from denying the resurrection of Christ. So we had if number one, and now we come to if number two. This is in verse 14. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, so he's building off of the previous if, 
If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Assuming that Christ has not been raised, Paul tells us two things are in vain. The apostles' preaching and the Corinthians' faith. For something to be in vain is for it to be absolutely meaningless and a waste of your time. So, for example, how many of you enjoy running? Is there anyone here who enjoys running? Okay. I don't get it, but I respect you. Okay. I'll only run if someone's chasing me. But the world's fastest mile ever run was 3 minutes and 43 seconds. Now, that's insanely fast. Insanely fast. Now, let's say you were to spend the rest of your life training. You were up early every morning. You were practicing late every night. I can guarantee you that you will never be able to run a two-minute mile. If the fastest mile is three minutes and 43 seconds, you will never be able to run a two-minute mile. You would be wasting your time because you'd be putting your energy into something that is not even a possible reality. And this is what Paul is getting at here. If Christ has not been resurrected, if they don't believe that Christ has been resurrected, then they're wasting their time. These are strong words from the apostle. You can see that every single thing hinges on whether or not Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead. This if is reemphasized, just like the first if. This one is also reemphasized in verse 17 with similar wording, but there is a twist this time. Paul tells us in verse 17 that not only is our faith in vain, but also we are still in our sins. And this gives us a clearer glimpse into what the resurrection of Jesus accomplishes. So if we follow Paul's logic, then we see that if Jesus is not raised, we are stuck in our sin. But then on the other hand, if Jesus has been raised, then we are not stuck in our sin. So our freedom from sin relies entirely on whether or not Jesus has been resurrected, which is why this is so important to Paul, and that's why it should be so important to us. So Paul closes out the ifs with one final conditional statement. This is if number three, and it's in verse 19. Paul writes, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. The last major if has to do with our hope. If Christ is not resurrected, then there is no hope beyond this world since he would be dead. If Christ were still dead, then the gospel would be a pitiful gospel indeed. Our gospel witness to others would quite literally lack any sort of liveliness if Jesus were not resurrected. So Paul says we should be pitied if this were the case. Now up to this point in his argument, Paul has followed a logical train of thought that has been completely disastrous for the Corinthians, and it has left them without cause for hope. However, There is reason for hope beyond this life. And that is why Paul does not stop here. So since Christ has been raised, have hope. Our third and final point for tonight is our resurrection hope. Our resurrection hope. And this is verse 20. So if Paul were to stop the letter at verse 19, it would be probably the worst cliffhanger of all time. You'd be left wondering, where is the hope? What do I have to hope in? But Paul keeps going. Verse 20 says this. 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. So after a series of ifs, Paul emphatically uses the word in fact. And this offsets all of the speculation about whether or not Christ is actually risen. The Apostle Paul, moved by the power of the Holy Spirit, authoritatively proclaims that Jesus Christ is risen. And this is a glorious reality that should have brought hope to the Corinthians and it should bring hope to you and I. But why exactly does it matter that Christ was raised? This was a question I often struggled with growing up. When I would think about big, weighty, theological topics that are presented to us in Scripture, I would often wonder, what does that have to do with me, right? Which is inherently a prideful question, but it can be valid nonetheless. Why does Christ's resurrection actually matter? Well, Paul actually answers this in his letter to the Corinthians. He calls Jesus the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, firstfruits is a phrase that shows up elsewhere in the New Testament, and we shouldn't overthink it. The word is literally referring to the first fruit, or the first portion of a harvest. So the first fruits went first, obviously, and then the rest of the harvest could then follow. So here's an example that illustrates this. When I was lifeguarding, got all the lifeguard illustrations today. When I was lifeguarding, I, me and my friends played a game called What Are the Odds? Do any of you play that game? Any of you know what that is? Okay, some of you. Okay, so I'll explain it. The game works like this. You ask someone, what are the odds you do this? Okay? And then the person will answer with a range of numbers. So they'll say, uh, 1 in 20. Okay? So then on the count of 3, you both have to say a number. And if you say the same number, then you actually have to follow through with the bet. Okay? So me and my friends were playing this game. Uh, we were hanging out. We were on break while we were lifeguarding. And one of my friends, we were in the break room, and he was like, what are the odds you do a gainer off the diving board? And a gainer is where you run forward, and then you jump, and then do a backflip while you're moving forward. Okay, it's really disorienting. And so he said, what are the odds you do a gainer? And I was like, there's no way I'm doing that. So I said, one in 50. And so he said, okay, great. One, two, three, and we both said 37. And I don't know how that happened, but I guess the Lord's providence. So we both said 37. And so I said, okay, great. I have to go try a gainer now. So I went up to the diving board, and I was shaking the knees, you know, and I walked up and I just went for it. I ran, I jumped, I flailed my body in the air. And when I came out of the water, I realized I just did a gainer. I just did a gainer. That was kind of fun. And all my friends were like, he just did a gainer. That was kind of cool. So then my friends, they hopped in line on the diving board and one by one, they all jumped and flailed their bodies. And soon enough, we were all doing gainers off the diving board. And so what happened was they needed someone to go first, someone to try the gainer before they did, right? And then soon enough, all of them could try it after. So Christ was the first to be raised from the dead by the Father. He was the first fruits. And he therefore paved the way for all who have fallen asleep to be raised into new life as well. That's what it means for Christ to be the first fruit. So this is the hope of the resurrection. Since Jesus has been raised, we too will be raised from the dead. And we will enjoy blessed fellowship with our God forever. So since Christ has been raised, have hope. Now I want to close with this. Eternal life is for everyone. And what I mean, what I mean by that is that 
everyone will spend eternity somewhere. It will either be in the presence of God glorifying him forever, or it will be in eternal damnation and hell. So eternal life is for everyone, but resurrection into new life with God is only for those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So you've heard the gospel this evening through the words of Paul. And I'll read it again, verses 3 and 4. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to different people. This is the gospel message. Have you received this gospel in faith? And have you placed your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? If you have then you will experience a glorious resurrection because Jesus has gone before you. He is the first fruit. Not only that, but you have already experienced resurrection in this life. Paul said that we have hope in this life and the future life, which means that we have been resurrected now and we will be resurrected then. Christ has resurrected us from when we were dead in our trespasses. And one day we will be finally resurrected and be in the presence of our God. If you have not received this gospel message and you have not placed your faith in the resurrection of Christ, then Paul tells us that you are still in your sins. You have not been resurrected from the deadliness of your sinfulness and all that you do in life is vain apart from Jesus' resurrection. That's what the gospel tells us. And the gospel is good news. That's what the word means. It's good news. And it centers on both the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So believe in him today and you will experience salvation in the Son. 